Well, if you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 in your Bible as we continue to walk through the book of Galatians together. We'll be looking at Galatians 4 verses 12 through 20 this Lord's Day. Uh, if you've been with us recently, you know that as we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's now uh, come to a point in his letter where he is urging uh, the Galatians to, to walk with Christ. He's talked to them about uh, the difference between genuine faith in Christ and just having worldly religion. He's pointed out uh, the error that they've been taught by the Judaizers. And now he is urging them, he is pleading with them to return to genuine faith in the genuine gospel. In fact, at last Lord's Day, as we were looking at Galatians 4 there, we saw uh, where Paul is pleading to the point where he's concerned that they may not even be believers at all. And so today he's going to continue in that plea, continue in calling them to genuine faith by reminding them of what it was like when he first shared the gospel with them and how enthusiastically they responded to that gospel. And yet now it seems they have turned against him. And so we're going to look at Galatians 4 verses 12 through 20. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read our text for us this Lord's Day. And this is what the Holy Spirit of God says to us through the Apostle Paul. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. If you would, join me in prayer. Father God, help us to discern your word. Help us to stand in confidence on it. Lord, help us to repent and have faith. Help us to see what the genuine gospel is and what it means to have genuine faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I like to watch on occasions shows like some that come on channels like the, the History Channel. Perhaps you've watched these shows where... Uh, people will take what they feel are, are prized possessions that they own or they've inherited and they'll go into different stores and find out what the true worth of that object is. I was watching one of these shows a few years ago and on it a man brought in a violin. He had purchased uh, some property, some land, and on that land there was a barn and in that barn there was an old wooden chest. And as he opened up that chest and sorted through the debris and the things in there, at the bottom of that chest, he found an old violin. And as he dusted off that violin, he saw there inscribed on the side of it, 
Stradivarius. Now, he knew a little bit about violins, enough to know that having a Stradivarius violin meant that he might have something worth millions of dollars in his hands. And so he took it rather enthusiastically uh, to this appraiser to have them look at it and tell him how many millions of dollars this find was worth. But his enthusiasm quickly turned to disappointment as this professional appraiser informed him that he didn't have the real thing. It was a replica. It was an imitation. Probably made in the early 1900s, worth a few hundred dollars, but far from the millions that he thought it was worth. This appraiser closed his session with this man by telling him this, Remember that just because something has a label doesn't mean it's real. As the Apostle Paul confronts the Galatians, he's telling them something very similar. The Judaizers had come to Galatia and they had been bearing the the label of godliness, the label of righteousness, the label of salvation. And the Apostle Paul was saying, just because they say that's what they offer, it doesn't mean they have the real thing. In fact, Paul argues that they did not have the real thing. Paul argues that what they were selling to the Galatians was not true salvation by faith in Christ alone. They were trying to tell the Galatians that they had to work for their salvation. They had to follow the Old Testament Mosaic law in order to be saved. Just because they bore the name of salvation, it didn't mean they had the real thing. And so what Paul has been doing in this letter is describing to the Galatians what genuine faith looks like. And as we've been studying, and I hope that you've seen that contrast between what it means to have genuine faith in Christ and what it simply means to have worldly religion, a set of do's and don'ts, this outer conformity that so many in our culture have. And so Paul continues now in Galatians chapter 4, really with pleading now with the Galatians. He is literally begging them to return to the truth that had been preached to them. And so as we walk through this passage, I hope that we will be reminded yet again what genuine faith looks like and what genuine faith produces, beginning with the first point there in your outline. The fruit of genuine faith is spiritual growth. The fruit of genuine faith is spiritual growth. Notice what Paul says there in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. That literally means I beg you. I plead with you. He is begging and pleading with the Galatians over what? He says, I entreat you, become as I am. What exactly is Paul asking there? You know, some think of that as an expression, you know, you, you need to be more like me. You need to do the things that I've done. But there's something deeper to what Paul's saying here. He, he's not just telling the Galatians, be like me. He's telling them to, to be like something greater than him, to be like Christ. And I think foundationally what he's telling them is to be like him in the regards to the law. Paul has come to them and said, I'm not under the burden of the law anymore, and you shouldn't be under the burden of the law anymore. I think that's why he says to them, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You see, the Galatians would have grown up as Gentiles outside of the family of God, outside of the law of God. And so Paul's saying to them, listen, you didn't grow up under the law. I grew up under the law, and yet I have left that behind because I know what it means to have justification, salvation by faith in Christ alone. 
I'm no longer under this burden of the law. I've become like you in that regard. And yet the temptation, and really what Paul says, that the foolishness that's there for the Galatians is that they're being compelled to go over here and to bring themselves under the law. Rather than trusting in Christ alone for salvation, they were being told, no, you need to adhere to these Old Testament mosaic laws and to do those, and then perhaps you'll be a part of the family of God. Paul says, no, you need to become as I am. You don't need to live under the law. And he says, become as I am. You need to be more like Jesus. Paul isn't just saying, be like me. He's saying, be like Christ. Be like me as I seek to be like Christ. And we see Paul use this expression often. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so Paul's not coming to the Galatians and saying, listen, I figured this all out. I'm the perfect Christian. If you just be like me, then you'll be the perfect Christian too. Now Paul's saying, I know that I need to follow Jesus and be like Jesus. And friend, you need to be like Jesus as well. Now this is the doctrine that we refer to as the doctrine of sanctification. Becoming more and more like Christ, becoming less and less like we used to be. God gives us a new heart. God makes us a new creation. And the fruit of that is that there should be change in our lives if we have genuine faith. Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. He says it this way, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So Paul here says, listen, you are now God's children, therefore you should imitate God. In other words, it should be apparent whose child you are. And we have this discussion in our house from time to time, perhaps you've had it in yours, where of our children, there'll be times when they have different characteristics or traits or behaviors or things they'll say that we very much identify with either myself or my wife. And so we'll see one of the kids do something and she'll turn to me and she'll say, well, how's it feel to watch yourself grow up? <laughs> and I'll say the same thing to her. I'll say, well, there's, there's a, you're, you're definitely your mother's daughter or you're your mother's son. Well, we'll see these things in our children that, that are just like us, these things that they are imitating, that they've learned along the way from either myself or from Sandy. As children, oftentimes it is natural to imitate our parents. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that if you are truly a child of God, then you should desire to imitate. You should desire to replicate. You should desire to have traits in your life. There should be fruit and evidence there of whose child you are. God does not save us and leave us as we are. God saves us and begins the process of sanctification in our lives through which we become more and more like Jesus in our everyday lives. When Paul says, become as I am, he is saying we need to be like Jesus. He is saying we need to have a faith that bears fruit. Yeah, up until this point in Paul's letter, he's been talking about what genuine faith looks like. What is the understanding of genuine faith? Now he's talking about what genuine faith looks like and what the application of genuine faith is. He's simply saying there should be fruit of our faith. 
mean, the fruit of genuine faith is spiritual growth. And so the question for you and I from the text then is this, are we growing to become more and more like Christ in our day-to-day lives? Is there tangible fruit in your life that would indicate that something has changed in your heart? In the book of Galatians, we'll go on to talk about this. We'll get in much greater detail in Galatians chapter 5. But again, just looking towards that, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 where he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. So Paul was saying that if you have the Spirit of the living God in you, then you should be a more loving person today than you used to be. So are you? Are you more loving today than you were when you became a follower of Jesus Christ? Not just that, he says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Friend, are you a joyful person? Are you a more joyful person today than when you first heard the gospel are you a more joyful person today than you were six months ago or six years ago said the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace do you have peace in your life do you have more peace today than you used to have patience are are you growing day to day in your patience kindness goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Summary, if you have genuine faith, there should be genuine fruit of your faith. We know the root by the fruit. And if the fruit's not there, it's an indication that the root's not there. Are you growing spiritually? Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. He's saying we need to grow in Christ's likeness. We need to become more and more like Jesus. So the question is, how do we do that? Well, the Scripture tells us many ways we can grow to become more like Jesus, that we can grow spiritually. For example, we grow when we study God's Word. And when we study the Word and we seek to apply it to our lives, we grow spiritually. Uh, We grow when we pray. The Scripture says that our prayer is a response to God's Word. For many of us, perhaps you grew up learning just kind of a, a routine prayer and a memorized prayer, but the Scripture says God speaks to us through His Word. We respond to Him through prayer. We grow in that way. Scripture also says we grow as we do what we're doing right now, as we fellowship together as a body, as we come together with other believers. God's Word says we grow as we go outside of these walls and we go and share the gospel with others and we're a witness and we evangelize. We grow that way. But notice it's not really any of those things that Paul points to next. What Paul points to next is the spiritual growth that the glory of God spreading through suffering. See, friends, what we see consistently in God's Word and what's the second point there in your outline is this, that God uses suffering for His glory and for our spiritual growth. Paul calls the Galatians to be more like Him, to be more like Jesus. And he says one of the ways that happens is through suffering. 
Let me just pause here for a second and recognize that, that we live in a Christian culture today that does not value suffering as a means for spiritual growth. That there are some who will tell you, perhaps some of you today have told others, that, that suffering is not a result or doesn't produce spiritual growth. Suffering comes from a lack of spiritual growth. Suffering comes from a lack of faith. If you just had more faith, you wouldn't suffer. You may have turned on the TV or picked up a book and heard somebody say, well, well, God's will for you, God's desire for you is just that you be happy and that you be wealthy and that you be healthy and that you just have your best life. And then you suffer, you go through pain, you go through crisis, and it doesn't fit into those formulas, but it fits into the pages of Scripture. Because what God's Word says over and over again helps us to understand that God has a purpose for suffering. And here, the Apostle Paul is exhibit A. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So Paul's saying to the Galatians that his trip there, it doesn't indicate here or seem that it was planned that he actually ended up there because something had happened to him. He was likely on a journey going somewhere else, but he had to stop in Galatia, he says specifically, because of a bodily ailment. Because God brought some suffering in his life. He allowed suffering in his life. And because of that suffering, Paul says, that's the whole reason I was there, to preach the gospel to you in the first place. Because of a bodily ailment. We don't know exactly what the nature of this ailment is, this issue is that he was suffering from. Some indicate that it might have been Paul saying that he had experienced uh, so much from persecution. I mean, you think about what Paul had gone through. He'd been beaten and flogged and left for dead and all these terrible things that happened to him. Some suggest that perhaps his time in Galatia was just a break from all of that. But, but I don't think that's the case, especially, again, when you look at this term, this phrase, because of a bodily ailment. And the Greek, that's more naturally understood to be sickness rather than persecution. Now, again, we don't know for certain what this sickness was, but I think there's some indications in the text that, that at least might give us a suggestion as to what it might have been. And for example, look at verse 15. In verse 15, Paul was speaking here about how the Galatians received him so well that they would have done anything for him. And notice the expression he uses. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. <laughs> what an expression. So there's some that look at that and say, well, Paul, Paul's just using a common expression of his day to indicate that, that they would have done anything for him. But the problem there is we don't really find that expression used in other places and other writings in this day. So I think it may indicate something to us about what it was Paul was enduring. Again, we don't know for certain, but this expression about the eyes may have had something to do with why Paul was in Galatia. For example, it was common in Paul's day to have some type of eye disease, especially in underdeveloped countries of our world today it's similar all types of eye disease that would affect one's ability to see even would have affected one's appearance and what their eyes looked like it could have been that paul had been suffering for quite some time from some type of eye disease and in fact this may have been it could have been what paul's speculating about or talking about in second corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about that thorn in his flesh that that messenger of satan 
that God used to humble him and used to show him his grace. Or it could have been something more short term. Paul could have been suffering from malaria. There are some forms of malaria that affect one's eyes, one's vision, even the appearance of the eyes. In fact, there's places in the world today where the primary test for malaria still is doctors will inspect a patient's eyes. And they can tell by looking at their eyes, an indicator can be there, that that person may be suffering from a form of malaria, a form that then can cause a temporary, even permanent blindness. And so it could be that along the way in all these journeys that Paul had picked up malaria and now that malaria affected his vision and not just how he saw, but how other people saw him. It was apparent something was wrong there. And that then seems to kind of fit into what Paul says here when he says, you cared so much about me, you would have given me your eyes if you could. In fact, I think it's further evidence that this may have been the case when you look at Galatians chapter 6 at the the end of Paul's letter where he writes in verse 11 see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand whatever the case Paul was suffering whatever the case God had brought something in Paul's life that restricted him from going anywhere else and kept him there in Galatia. And as a result of Paul's suffering, people were hearing the gospel. And as a result of Paul's suffering, God was receiving glory. And friends, this is how God uses suffering in the life of His people. One commentator said it this way, the beauty of Christ is reflected in the humble and glad suffering of His servants. Friends, how do you respond to suffering when it comes your way as a follower of Christ? Do you receive it gladly? I'm not talking about that, 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 that cultural, you know, turn that frown upside down, put on a happy face. I'm saying, do, do you receive it understanding that while you don't understand it, that there is one that does understand it and has a purpose for it? I think that's how the Apostle Paul was understanding and presenting suffering in the Word. In fact, he writes about it in other letters. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and following, Paul says that God gives us afflictions that he then might comfort us and then might use us to comfort others in their afflictions that this is a purposeful thing that God does he allows these sufferings for a purpose that he then might comfort us that we might comfort others in fact Paul goes on to say that those afflictions allow us to quote share abundantly in Christ's sufferings so through Christ we share abundantly in comforts too Colossians 1 24 Paul rejoiced in his sufferings because he understood that they made him a better minister of the word and to the church. Acts chapter 9 verse 7, the Lord Jesus notes when speaking of the call he's going to place on the Apostle Paul's life that he would suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. God had a purpose for Paul's suffering. And he has a purpose for your suffering as well. And he calls us in the midst of that suffering to trust in him. Friends, I don't think that means that we should long for suffering or look for suffering. In fact, I don't think any of us do. 
Nobody wants pain. Nobody wants crisis. Nobody wants sickness and death and disease. We don't look for these things. We spend time with our kids at times talking about the future and their, their dreams and their hopes. You probably have similar conversations. You know, what do you want to do and where do you want to live? And you know, ask them all these questions. My, my kids don't say to me, well, at this point in my life, I'm really hoping that I just suffer greatly. I'm really hoping God just brings a great tragedy in my life when I'm 32. Now, we, we don't look for those things. We don't, we don't go to them purposefully or intentionally, but we need to understand that in God's economy there are times when He allows suffering and He does it for a purpose, and we may not fully understand that purpose this side of eternity. But what we need to understand is that He is sovereign over it and that He has a plan for it. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So God has good purposes for our pain. I mean, consider what may have gone through the Apostle Paul's mind. He, he had endured much persecution. He, he had been through so many things. And now he has this ailment, perhaps, of his eyes where he can't even see. And he has to stop here in Galatia. And then he proclaims the gospel in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his pain. And people receive it gladly. And the kingdom grows through his trial and through his suffering. But I would imagine for Paul, there was probably a period there where he said, Lord, why me? Lord, why this? Lord, take this pain away. Because, friends, that's how I've prayed. And I think that's how a lot of us pray. Because when we're in the midst of it, in the thick of it, we're not asking God to bring more on. We're asking God to take it away. But we need to understand that God's doing something in those moments for His greater purposes and good. Again, we may not see it this side of heaven, but we can trust that He has a plan. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He, he described it as a, a physician when they go about surgery. Perhaps it's, you know, there, there, there's a bone there that needs to be broken and set, or there's an incision that has to be made, that there's a point there where, as the patient, we might cry out in pain and say, Stop. But we need to trust what that physician is doing. He says it this way. But suppose that what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more deliberately he'll go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. We need to understand, we need to trust in God that he has a purpose for our pain and for our suffering. And we see exhibit A here of Paul, who in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, God would use him greatly there in Galatia to spread the gospel. See, God not only does that, but God, he displays his glory to the world when we suffer. Paul speaks of that affliction in 2 Corinthians 12, perhaps the same affliction that brought him to Galatia, and he says this about it. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 9. But he said to me, the Lord said to me, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Have you ever seen a Christian suffer who sought to bring glory to God? What a witness that is to a lost and dying world. And friends, this world needs more of that. I don't think the greatest need in the church today is for Christian celebrities to get behind a pulpit and say at the pinnacle height of their career, well, I just want to give all glory to God. As good a thing as that may be. I don't think the greatest need in the church of Christ today is for a Christian athlete there in the end zone to spike the ball and point to heaven and say, well, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As good a thing as that may be. I think what the church of Christ needs more of today is people in their trial and their persecution and their suffering and their calamity and their death and in their loss to say, I want to give all glory to God in the midst of my pain. For people who suffer devastation to say, I don't understand this and I would never ask for this, but I will thank God that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and I will thank Him that I can trust in the day when there will be no more suffering and there will be no more pain and there will be no more death and there will be no more sickness and there will be no more grief. That is how the grace of God is sufficient and is evident in our weakness. Paul does not say here, when, I weak, when I'm weak, then, then I'm strong because of me. He says, when I'm weak, I'm strong because that's when Christ is seen through me. That's when Christ is most evident to others in my life. That is when God is glorified through my suffering. And by the way, Paul continues to suffer because as he writes in this letter, he talks about how they've turned from saying, we would give you our eyes <laughs> to you're the enemy, Paul. And so he even faces rejection by those that he ministered to in the midst of his suffering. But Paul understood that God was using his suffering for his greater purposes. So we see here the fruit of genuine faith is spiritual growth. We see that God uses suffering for his glory and for our spiritual growth. And then point three, we see that sound doctrine is necessary for spiritual growth. Doctrine is a set of beliefs. Uh, sometimes we elevate that word to, to, to something we feel is academic or is out of reach. But friends, listen, everybody has doctrine. Everybody has a set of beliefs. Everybody has a way they kind of package things together. The Judaizers had a doctrine they were presenting to the Galatians. Paul had a doctrine that he was presenting to the Galatians. One of them was sound and one of them was wicked. One of them was false. And what Paul is encouraging them to do here is to recognize that which is sound and that which is not. He says in verse 17, speaking of the Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. You know, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, the, the Judaizers are coming to you and what they're promising you is, well, you can really be a part of the people of God if you'll believe what we're selling. If you'll take on our doctrine, then you're really a part of the people of God. Paul says, no, if you really take on what they're selling, that excludes you from the people of God. If you really believe 
Salvation comes through works, not by faith. And friend, you're not a part of this body. So what they're promising to offer you, they're not delivering on, and they're just doing it to boast themselves up. They're not looking out for you, they're looking out for themselves. They're trying to sell you on their false doctrine. Paul says, no, you need sound doctrine. That's why he goes on in verses 18 and 19 to say it was always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only am I present with you, then he talks about having this anguish that Christ will be formed in them. What's Paul saying? He's saying it's, it's a good thing when your doctrine's good and your belief's good and you're made much of because you're, you're really truly trusting in Christ. So Paul essentially says, so trust in Christ. He says he's in anguish. That, that, that description of, of childbirth, that, that laboring pain and anticipation. So I just, I just want to see you grow in Christ. I just want to see you become more and more like Jesus. Friends, that, that should be our desire for one another at Bloomfield Baptist Church. At the end of the day, this isn't about building funds and attendance numbers and how many are on your roll and how many got baptized and how much did you give at the end of the day this is what this is about that we might become more and more like jesus and if you're not becoming more and more like jesus then you're missing the point and it may be that you're wearing the label christian but the heart has not changed. And you may fool every person in this church, but you will not fool our Lord. And there is a promise, and it is this, you will stand accountable one day. And that day may be today. That day may be 50 years from now, but one day all will be bare before the holiness of God. And there's no more labels. And there's no more charades. And there's no more performances. There is the truth of whether or not your faith and my faith was genuinely trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. And if we were trusting in anything else, then we will see clearly that day that we trusted in the wrong thing. And God is gracious to us that He gives us today to consider this call to respond in repentance and in faith. But hear me, friend, there, there, there's no quick fix to spiritual growth. I fear that so many times we come to the church thinking, well, well if I just do this, if I just say this, if I just read this, well, then, then I can just fix everything all of a sudden. Everybody wants a shortcut. Well, we live in a microwave society. We just want to punch a button for a few seconds and then everything gets fixed. But what the Scripture says is no, spiritual growth is a slow, long process. Salvation happens when we trust Christ. It happens in a moment. We are saved. Becoming more and more like Jesus, well, that's, that's a long, long road. And along the way, we may suffer, and we may want to throw in the towel, but the Scripture says if we're truly saved, we won't throw in the towel. And we may get to moments where we think, I'll never persevere, but the Scripture says if we are genuinely saved, we will persevere. And so we just keep trudging along and trusting and having faith, and God does a work in us. And it is a long work, but it is so worth it.
I was thinking about this just uh, yesterday with the construction out here in Bloomfield of taking different routes going back and forth to Bardstown and been just seeing more farms and folks working. I just want to apologize to the front end if you're a farmer. I'm not a farmer. I'm sure I will say something wrong. I'm trying. I've learned a couple things, I think, but maybe not. But here's what I recognize about farming. This time of year, driving around, I've, just, I've seen all these folks out there, and they're, they're at this point now where they're just bringing in this harvest. And, and I'm not a farmer. I, I don't know everything, but I, but I know enough to know that didn't happen overnight. That, that's the culmination of a long process. And along the way, everything probably didn't go as planned. <laughs> but, but a lot goes into that. It's a long haul. You, you don't just wake up, somebody like me one day, and say, you know what, I think I'll become a farmer today, and I'll just go out and reap the harvest today. <laughs> it's not the way it works. It's a long, long road, but one day the harvest comes. Friends, the Christian life is a long hard row but one day the harvest comes and jesus says he is returning for that harvest and he says he will gather his people and he will sort out those who are truly his and those who are not and there will be an eternal kingdom for those heirs of the promise, those that are truly His children, and there will be eternal judgment and wrath on those who were not. And God is showing us grace today that before that harvest time hits, that we might fully trust in Him. That we might lay aside the labels and the charades and the attempts and might truly lay bare before the Lord today and trust in Him if we have not. And if we have, but we are growing weak and we are growing weary. He reminds us through His Word that harvest time is coming, friends. Hold on. Trust in Him. Share His Word with others. And long for that day. If you would, let's pray for that together. If you'll go ahead and, and stand as we prepare to sing about that, to long for what it means to look to Christ, to come to Christ. If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you for we thank you for this moment. You tell us in your word that today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for any here in this room who's yet to trust in Christ. I, I pray, God, they would not sleep another night before they would come to terms with what the gospel truly is that they would trust in You. I pray, God, for those who perhaps long ago trusted in You, but they have suffered, and they have suffered, and they have suffered. Lord, I pray that You would help them to stand firm and to hold on. And to know that You are a God who keeps His promises, and Your Word is true. You have not left us as orphans. We are Your children. You are conforming us into Your image. We're becoming more and more like You in our day-to-day -day lives. And one day, we will be with You in Your glory. Father, help us to hold on and stand firm until that day. And Lord, thank You that You hold on to us until that day. And we can rest securely in that truth. Help us to trust in You and walk with You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.